Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, we begin our look into Afghanistan one year after the fall of Kabul, including a look at life inside the country under Taliban rule and the ongoing fight to provide sanctuary in this country to Afghans who work with the Canadian government and Canadian military and the roadblocks that remain. We look into Ottawa's much-vaunted 2 Billion Trees initiative to find out if it's actually on track. But first, is there light at the end of the tunnel for the 40-year high inflation rates we've been seeing over the past months? New data from the U.S. this week shows it might be easing, but a former Bank of Canada official we speak to has his doubts and believes interest rates will continue to rise. First up tonight, maybe some good news when it comes to high prices. This has certainly been a spring and summer of inflation. We've seen it with rising prices, rising interest rates as the Bank of Canada tries to rein in that inflation. The latest figures in Canada for June showed prices rising at their fastest pace since January of 1983, up from 8.1%, uh, up to 8.1% from 7.7% in May, but short of forecasts. Some believed it would be 8.4%. So there's some good news. Uh, we'll find out what July's inflation numbers were like next week here. Uh, but some light at the end of the tunnel, at least according to some U.S. data released this week. The annual inflation rate eased from a 40-year high of 9.1% in June to 8.5% in July. Again, that was below forecasts. Commodities such as oil, lumber, copper are all down. Crops such as wheat, corn, and canola as well. Prices dropping there. So what does that mean for us? And what will it mean for future interest rate hikes? What's the Bank of Canada looking into all this and seeing? Joining me now is someone who knows. Jean-Paul Lam is a former assistant chief economist and a principal researcher at the Bank of Canada. He's now an associate professor of economics at the University of Waterloo. Thanks for your time tonight. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, some relief in sight. I guess uh, these numbers seem to be showing not not exactly, you know, we're not going back in time too far. At least we're not going back in time a few years. But it looks like things might be heading in the right direction when it comes to this this ever-increasing inflation rate. Yeah, as you mentioned, the data coming out from the U.S. indicates that we are seeing some slowdown, at least in the rate of increase in prices. But I think a month of data is not enough to tell us that the successive increases in interest rates are finally working and slowing down demand in the economy to push prices down. I think there are still a lot of price pressures in the economy, and the the data, at least uh, from Canada, the data from June, uh, inflation does suggest that price pressures are still broad-based, and we need a few months of data to make sure that we are, we, are, we are going to see inflation coming down finally. Right. Well, I guess one report does not a trend make, right? Um, what is pointing in the right direction, at least in the U.S. right now? I gather, I mean, definitely oil prices are down a bit. That'll always help. But uh, commodity prices in general seem to be dropping a bit. But that's not what you're talking about when you're talking about, uh, about uh, demand, demand continuing to be high. No, I, I think the, the good news is the pressure on raw materials uh, have eased at least uh, in June and July in the U.S., and it seems to be the case in Canada. Uh, things like oil prices, lumber prices, and, and other raw materials and commodities, the prices have fallen significantly, actually, uh, 20 to 25 percent in some cases. And that has translated into lower prices for consumers. I think the, the, we've seen also um, ease in, in some transportation costs, which were increasing at very significant rate in the last, at the beginning of the year. I think where we are still seeing a lot of price pressures, and we haven't seen these uh, full round effects yet, are in wage prices. We know that the shortages of labor are putting pressure on prices, and this is something that we haven't seen or accounted fully in the round of prices, at least in Canada. We might see more price pressures coming from higher wages. I think the good news is um, uh, the rate increases across the world from central banks are doing actually what they should be doing, that is easing demand and putting pressure, uh, less pressure on prices to increase. Uh, what could this mean? I mean, you, you discussed that we can't really see what's happening yet, but what would this mean for, for consumers in general? Will we see any sort of dropping in prices? I gather where we might see it a bit is in goods, as you mentioned, raw materials coming down a bit. Uh, but in services, and you mentioned the higher wages, services, I don't think we're going to see a break at all anytime soon. Actually, what is happening in the economy is actually 
what we thought would be happening. Remember when we hit the pandemic, a lot of the service industry were forced to close and we as consumers uh, could not spend our money as usual, but also a significant portion of uh, people get got a lot of money from the government as uh, hands out to, to help them in, in the hardship. So there was a lot of expenditure on goods and at the same time, if you remember, the production and the supply of goods were hampered because of uh, supply side constraints and also the economy closing down. So now what we are seeing is we are seeing this rotation of uh, consumption a little bit away from uh, goods. So that's why we're seeing the price pressures easing on consumption of goods away to services, things like travel, which is in high demand. So absolutely right that the inflation that we are now seeing is being moved to a large extent to the the price of services and that's why i think we're not out of the woods as many economists are claiming because we will see much higher inflation in the service sector yeah and, and i guess even on the raw materials side the war in ukraine continues winter's approaching we're reading about all sorts of potential energy shortages in europe uh that could change everything that could change the whole dynamic quite quickly i would imagine Definitely. I, I, no one can predict what will happen in Ukraine. We know that the uh, Russia's invasion in Ukraine is still putting a lot of pressure on energy prices and, and on food prices. Until this conflict has a resolution, I don't think we will see prices significantly abating there. And um, people might have forgotten about this, but we're still in the midst of, of the pandemic around uh, in a lot of countries. And this will continue putting a lot of pressure on supply constraints and supply chains. We're still not out of woods. And we're still hearing from a lot of industries that they are still suffering from shortages in raw materials. If you look at the auto industry, there's still a chronic shortage of semiconductors. So all these supply constraints uh, will continue to put pressure on prices in the next few months. And Honestly, we've, as you mentioned, with winter coming in, with higher demand for energy and uh, the conflict in Ukraine restricting supply of energy, especially in Europe, this will again uh, put pressure, further pressure on oil prices in, in winter to increase. So it's, it's, there are lots of forces at play affecting inflation right now, and it's, I think it's, it's hard to know what will happen to inflation in, in the short run. In the, I think in the long run, everyone agrees. By the long run, I mean in the next year, by the middle of 2023, we should see inflation coming down because the supply constraints should start easing to a large extent, and hopefully we have a resolution in, in Ukraine as well. Yeah, uh, I mean, I guess, is it fair to say we're seeing a bit of a leveling off, though, to some extent? I mean, we've seen these big increases over the last many months up until, you know, up into the 8% range. Is it fair to say that might be leveling off a little bit? Yeah, I think it is. Uh, the rate of increase in prices should start slowing down. I mean, prices may continue to increase, but the rate at which they are increasing should slow down. This is I think good news for everyone. This is good news for central banks. I, th I think it will ease the pressure on central banks to increase interest rate rapidly. But we're still facing very high inflation compared to what we've been accustomed to in the last 25 years in Canada. Remember, the, the target of the Bank of Canada is 2%, and we are at 8.1% uh, 8 in, in June. Uh, so we still have a long way to go to bring down inflation from 8 to 2%, which is what the, the Bank of Canada's commitment is to Canadians. A good segue, Jean-Paul Lamb, because when we come back, we'll talk about uh, what the Bank of Canada might do with interest rate hikes going forward, given this data, if, if, if we're able to predict. Uh, I'll be back with Jean-Paul Lamb after this. Jean-Paul Lamb is with us this half hour. He's a former assistant chief economist and a principal researcher at the Bank of Canada. He's an associate professor of economics at the University of Waterloo. We're talking about inflation, uh, some signs in the U.S. Uh, data released this week that things are maybe slowing down just a little bit. But as Jean-Paul was saying, one report does not a trend make. Uh, I know from uh, your old position at the Bank of Canada that they'll be watching all of this very closely to see what to do. Um, any, any thoughts on what they might be seeing with, the, with all this data out there? They must be seeing exactly what you are, which is one, trend, one uh, report does, a trend does not make. 
Yeah, I, I think they, they will stay the course. They know that there's a long way to get inflation back to the target, which is 2%. So Canadians should brace themselves for further increases in interest rate. The, the Bank of Canada usually estimates what we call the, the neutral interest rate. So this is an unobserved interest rate where we think at that level there is no pressure on prices to increase or decrease. So this is the magic number, if you want, where the Bank of Canada wants to get to to get inflation back to 2%. And their estimates suggest that this neutral interest rate is around 3%. Now, because inflation has been running extremely high and volatile for a while, they need the need to get their interest rate past that neutral rate. So that's my opinion. I think we will see interest rate go beyond 3% to get inflation back to 2%. It won't happen overnight because it takes a while for interest rates to, to work their magic through the economy to decrease aggregate demand. But no matter the numbers we see in July coming out next week, even if we see some in numbers easing in terms of um, inflation, the Bank of Canada will stay the course and uh, there will be a, a fairly significant, I know, a fairly significant increase in interest rate next, uh, next month. So you're thinking somewhere around 3.5% might be, might be that magic number? I think this is where the Bank of Canada will go by the mid of 2023, around 3 and 3.5%. Obviously, it's data-dependent. The interest rate path is very data-dependent. If they see that they are making progress on inflation, that inflation is falling faster than they expect, the pace at which they increase interest rate will slow down, obviously. But if inflation remains sticky and stubborn and volatile, as we've seen in the last six months, I think the pace at which we've seen interest rates increases the last uh, couple of months will continue. Most economists, uh, obviously, uh, we, we're not, it's very hard to predict inflation, but it's fair to say that the Bank of Canada and other central banks around the world have been surprised by how fast inflation has been increasing and how volatile it, it has been. Jean-Paul Lamb, thank you so much for your time. Have a great weekend. You too. Thank you for having me again. Well, Monday marks a year since the world watched the Taliban roll back into Afghanistan's capital, Kabul, and more than 20 years after they were ousted, take control of the country once again. I spent quite a bit of time in Afghanistan, and it was difficult to watch. I thought of all those that I'd met while I was there, specifically those who cared so much about working under a non-Taliban-ruled Afghanistan. And what were they going to do? We saw the chaos of tens of thousands of people trying to flee to the airport to try to get out of there. The announced withdrawal of American troops that helped prompt the Taliban takeover was completed soon after. And suddenly, after two decades of nation-building there, or attempts to, uh, you know, the blood and treasure that it cost us as Canadians, you know, the, the work Canadian forces did, the soldiers that were lost, the soldiers that were injured, all the rest of uh, those who came back with scars that may not be seen but have been difficult to heal. Many were left to wonder, what now? What next? Is everything we did over all that time completely undone? Well, few Canadians know that country as well as my next guest, a former Globe and Mail correspondent, author of The Dogs Are Eating Them Now. Graham Smith is now a senior court consultant for Afghanistan for the International Crisis Group and was back in Afghanistan this spring. He joins me from London. Graham, thank you so much for your time. Welcome back. Nice to see you. Nice to see you again. Listen, you spent so much time in Afghanistan over the years. You were just back. Uh, What's it like? What, what What is your sense of how things are when you've when you land there now, given the amount of time you spent there over over the past decades? It's weirdly, weirdly quiet. I mean, the reason you and I went there basically is because there is a great big war. Um, and so it's odd to be back when there isn't. Um, you know, a lot of the check posts have been dismantled. 
you know, walking into a ministry building used to be a whole thing, you know, you'd you had to book carefully in advance and you'd get frisked and then frisked again. And, you know, your, your gear would get taken apart if you were a broadcast journalist and, you know, it's just physically getting in the building was a whole palaver. And now um, just, you know, everybody's much more relaxed at all the checkpoints. Um, and, um, you know, Afghans are, uh, experiencing uh, a bit of calm, a bit of respite from what had been the deadliest conflict on the planet Earth. Uh, I would say it's a nervous, it's a nervous calm, especially you know for people in the urban areas um, who you know are not so happy about the Taliban taking over. It's uh, um, uh, there's a lot of paranoia about um, living under the Taliban, but j- just that feeling of, of, of the war being finished is, is, is quite an odd thing. Yeah, I guess that begs the question then at what price peace, right? Because obviously we've heard about uh, or read about and seen uh, the erosion of certain rights that have been in place. Uh, what's your sense of how that, that has been in the first year of Taliban rule? Just how different is it now, uh, war aside? It's quite different. It's quite different. I mean, um, the Taliban took power promising their own supporters uh, an Islamic system. Didn't really say what that meant. Um, but, uh, you know, and I think there were, you know, different views within the Taliban about, about what that should mean. You know, some of them thought um, they would have something not too different from the previous government um, and maybe a kind of symbolic uh, figurehead emir. Um, And then, you know, in the spring, what we found out is the emir uh, had different plans, you know, he had different ideas. And and so there was a kind of a a group of religious conservatives around the supreme leader of the Taliban, the emir, who really started to assert themselves. And you saw them um, banning girls from secondary education, uh, although that a ban apparently only applies in about half the provinces, um, decreeing that uh, women should not uh, reveal their faces in public. Uh, although, again, you know, enforcement has been really not um, as bad as we had feared. Um, and then also, you know, with the recent discovery of Zawahiri, the Al Qaeda leader, sort of living on the doorstep of the Taliban in downtown Kabul, um, I think you really got a sense that there are, you know, some people within the Taliban um, <laughs> who have very different ideas than the the group of Taliban who were sort of negotiating with the Americans and hoping for better relations with the outside world. So this notion of Taliban 2.0 is uh, is a complex one, no doubt. I, you know, yeah, I've never used that phrase. I think yeah. it's a bit silly. I, <laughs> it I really, bit silly. You know, it is a bit silly. I agree, but yeah, I've always yeah. I've always told people the Taliban are the Taliban. You know, yeah. and, and and actually, you know, in, in Afghan political terms, they're you know they remain the most cohesive and sort of consistent political group that we've seen. You know, in in recent decades, a lot of the different political factions have really sort of splintered and changed. And you know, the Taliban have been remarkably consistent over the years. So it's amazing to think that what you have now is a sort of wiser, cohesive Taliban in power. It feels like even with sanctions in place, we know there's a humanitarian crisis going on in the country, but this particular regime seems fairly immune to uh, to isolation from the West and those sanctions. What's going on? Well, they certainly have their problems. Um, I would, you know, I, I, I devote a lot of my professional career to sort of listing those problems and, and analyzing them. Um, but yes, I mean, they, they took over, um, the moment they took over the sort of existing Western sanctions against the Taliban kind of snapped into place as sanctions essentially against the uh, entire government, in some ways, the entire state, and, and in some cases, the entire territory of Afghanistan, because, you know, at least initially, um, it was very, very hard to do even just any kind of private business, because everyone thought that the sort of long shadow of US sanctions would uh, affect private business. The, the Americans have taken some rapid steps to try to um, ease the blow, I think, um, especially with something called General License 20 in the spring. It was actually the, the most sort of far-reaching exception to U.S. sanctions ever in U.S. sanctions history. Um, and there's some people in the Treasury Department who are very proud that they've sort of, you know, lifted that burden from the Afghan people. But uh, 
at the end of the day, you know, billions of dollars of central banking assets remain held, essentially frozen in uh, the United States and in Europe. More, more or less, the Western powers have robbed the central bank. Um, and there is still a huge chilling effect from, from U.S. sanctions. Um, correspondent banking relationships have dried up. Um, you know, so the Western economic restrictions continue to bear heavily on the economy. And that's partly why Afghanistan is uh, one of the largest humanitarian disasters on the planet Earth. The, the latest UN review uh, put about half the population on the brink of starvation, 20 million people on the brink of starvation. And so that's, you know, the, as we get towards winter, um, I think that will again be the focus as uh, everyone tries to avert uh, a bigger famine. I'm speaking with Graham Smith. He's a senior consultant for Afghanistan with the International Crisis Group. He's speaking to us tonight from London. We're talking about the uh, the one-year anniversary of the fall of Kabul, the return of the Taliban, which has brought both peace and uh, conflict in other ways to the country. Uh, we've been talking just now about the humanitarian crisis, which has worsened uh, of late in Afghanistan. And one of the dilemmas facing many Western governments is how do you help the people of Afghanistan while not helping uh, the regime it's a it's a it's a dilemma that uh, we haven't seemed to quite figured out just yet we'll talk about that with graham after this our guest is graham smith he's a senior consultant for afghanistan with the international crisis group he's of course a former global mail journalist and author who spent a lot of time in that country including most recently uh, a visit this spring uh, graham you, you bring up an interesting point because there is this desire i think to to help um uh, Afghanistan, a country that we have spent a lot of time in in this century, help it avoid the worst of this humanitarian crisis. At the same time, uh, there is this reluctance to help the Taliban, and 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 it you, you can't do both, can you? Exactly you- right. Exactly right. It's you know, this is one of those things where I, I wish that the the thing that is sort of politically feasible in the West is also the thing that's feasible on the ground in Afghanistan, and it's just not. Uh, there is no way of helping the Afghan people with an economic revival in a way that does not whatsoever assist, uh, you know, the Taliban controlled government. I mean, it is now, um, you know, the stated policy of the United States and Europe to assist with, uh, getting the economy back on its feet. And what that will mean is, more uh, revenues flowing into the central treasury of the Taliban-controlled government. There's, there's no getting around that fact. In fact, that is our exit route. That is the way of making the country self-sufficient uh, so that it does not require the largest you know, humanitarian intervention on the planet Earth. Uh, we, we, you know, we don't want to keep sending bags of food. We, we don't actually have enough bags of food to send. Um, and so you know, helping the Taliban regime to sort of get its act together on the economic front, you know, as, as much as we hate the Taliban, that's really the only option. And um, it is difficult and it's resulted in some, you know, very hard conversations, um, you know, within governments, um, within multilateral organizations. I, I really think that small countries like Canada have kind of avoided that hard conversation because it just, it's such a marginal issue, you know, it hardly gets any airtime whatsoever. And so Canada actually retains these incredibly tough uh, sanctions rules that makes it very hard for uh, humanitarian organizations to operate on the ground. Um, But it hardly gets any attention in Ottawa. And and so I, I don't see a huge movement to lift those restrictions. And yet, you know, and you mentioned it off the top, you know, part of the reason we were there, obviously, at the time, and you spent a lot more time in Afghanistan than I did, but it was this, to, to chart Canada's uh, mission in that country. Part of that mission was to bring about change when it came to women's education and so on. Is there any way now to try to preserve some of what was achieved over that, over those many, many years, and, you know, through blood and treasure, no doubt, is there any way to achieve that without recognizing that the Taliban are essentially there for the time being to stay? I don't think I don't think diplomatic recognition really has anything to do with it, and I right. that is a. Yeah. I don't. I mean, I mean more, less diplomatic recognition than more. If if you want to see Afghanistan progress, it's going to be the way it is now. In other words, yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And the education is a really good example, actually, because um, it's a very important service that is delivered by the state. I mean, 
we can't just kind of parachute education NGOs into Afghanistan completely separate from the Taliban and create some sort of parallel system of education. Like, no, we, we have schools, there is an education ministry, um, you know, like it or not, it's an education ministry controlled by the Taliban and we have to work with it. Um, and, you know, that is what uh, donors are trying to do, actually, outside of Canada. You know, for Canadians, um, you know, the Canadians have still said that not a penny uh, of funding can go to uh, state institutions. That's still um, the Canadian attitude. But, you know, other donors are, are much more forward leaning and they are getting involved with trying to help just, you know, uh, with the nuts and bolts of, you know, getting the education ministry working. And I have to say it is having some limited successes. Um, there are today more girls in school in Afghanistan across the country than there were under previous governments, according to the World Bank. Uh, now, that is uh, leaving, uh, that's, that average means that there are a lot of girls flooding into primary schools because the war is over and because families, conservative families especially, feel that it's okay to send your girls to school under a Taliban-controlled government. Um, so they don't have those same cultural concerns. And, you know, there is still a gaping hole in, in secondary where uh, teenage girls in many provinces, in too many provinces, are still shut out of schools. Um, but, you know, the way to fix that problem is to, is to work with the Taliban on it. And, um, and unfortunately, that's the only way forward. I think that's a reality that's that people are having a hard time coming to. I mean, and as you mentioned, Canada's regime is sanctions regime is still very much in place. Is that is that hurting our legacy there. I guess what I was trying to get at is that, you know, we spent a lot of years in that country trying to build something and it would be a shame to throw it all away because we can't deal with changing realities on the ground. It's a hard emotional thing. You know, um, I've been personally bombed and shot at and rocketed and mortared and RPG'd, you know, in Afghanistan by the Taliban. Um, you know, you and I, we, we lost, uh, we lost colleagues, right? Um, we lost friends. Um, uh, you know, so there are Canadians who who bear the scars on their bodies from this this brutal conflict, mm-hmm. and it's only been a year uh, that it's been over. So it's still pretty fresh, and I think it's going to take time. Um, but yeah, um, you know, my colleagues and I just finished doing a very detailed look at the security picture, and and exactly as you say, I mean, the upshot of that it, it looks like the Taliban are not going anywhere, and so this is what we have to work with. So a year after the fall of Kabul, um, you know, do you think there's anything that we should have, should we have committed more? Should we have tried to stay longer? Should we have tried to prevent this Taliban takeover from happening? You know, the very first words of, of my book that I, I published in 2013 in Canada, and it was a long time ago, um, the very first four words of the book are, we lost the war. Um, you know, and that's nine years ago, <laughs> nine, sure, eight, eight yeah. years before the fall of Kabul, exactly. Yeah, I mean, and that wasn't, that wasn't all that radical in my social group. You know, a lot of people, you know, saw this coming. Um, it was pretty clear to me that uh, we weren't going to sort of radically change Afghanistan at gunpoint. Um, no, I mean, there are um, ways in which Afghanistan has changed. Um, you know, it's a much more literate society than it used to be. Um, it's a much healthier society. There are today twice as many Afghans as there were the last time the Taliban ruled the country. Mm-hmm. I mean, so many things are... And um, young Afghans, young Afghans, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but, you know, we dropped a lot of bombs on that place. Um, you and I were there, you know, we, we, we felt the impact of those explosions. And, you know, that we smashed a lot of irrigation. Uh, you know, there is today less area under effective irrigation in Afghanistan than it was in the 1970s. And now we have a much bigger population to feed. Agricultural still remains the, the largest um, source of income across the country. And so um, the, the World Bank and others are starting to think about, okay, how do we put this back together? You know, how do we get the water flowing to the crops? Uh, how do we keep the lights on, right? How do we build uh, electricity corridors? And so there are, I think, these just basic needs that Canada could help with uh, to sort of maybe remedy uh, a bit of our legacy there. Graham, as always, thank you so much for your time. Lovely to speak to you. Thank you, Ben. Let's get back to our review of 
Afghanistan one year after the fall of Kabul. And perhaps one of the biggest stories in this country, as we've kind of turned our eyes away from what's actually happening in the country, has been efforts to bring those Afghans who work so closely with the Canadian government and Canadian forces to this country, to provide them sanctuary. Because, listen, a lot of them have targets on their back. You know, they worked with either NATO or a foreign government, and the Taliban have a fairly good idea of who these people were, maybe not all of them. But if you lived there and you worked for a government that suddenly fell and a new regime came into power that had been the sworn enemy of that government for decades, uh, you'd be afraid too. Uh, the list of those who would qualify is long, given the more than more than a decade, the years that Canada was on the ground in Afghanistan, from translators and interpreters to embassy staff and so on. Now, one group that is particularly vulnerable is those who actively worked with the military justice system under the former regime. And that includes a group set up by former Canadian Forces legal officer, Major Corey Moore. He's been fighting to bring 12 Afghans and their families to Canada. All of them worked with him as he helped to try to strengthen the Afghan National Army's legal branch. There was even a project to recruit and recruit he did including eight Afghan female military lawyers to work as prosecutors and criminal investigators, including prosecuting suspected Taliban army infiltrators. So you can imagine when the fall of Kabul happened and the return of the Taliban arrived, it changed everything for them. They're now in danger. They've been forced into hiding while waiting for word to come that they are welcome in this country. But so far, that word has not arrived. Joining me now with more on this is Major Corey Moore and Tamar Bogassian, an immigration lawyer in Ottawa, working with Moore to try to bring the 12 and their families to Canada. Thanks for your time to both of you tonight. Thank you. Good evening, Ben. Thanks for having us. So let me begin with you, Corey, just a bit of background on the work you were doing um, and the Afghan staff you worked with, I gather, amongst it all. You also championed uh, women law grads in, in Afghanistan as well. So you had some some pretty high-ranking staff. Well, it was a unique opportunity. There's no question about it. Um, when I was initially approached to to go on this particular deployment and told that I would be uh, mentoring colonels within the legal branch of the ANA, I was I was kind of taken aback because uh, that is an opportunity where I think uh, you know you can make a difference. By the time that uh, you know you're eight years into uh, the mission. And you yourself have seen your own deployments progress from like institution building, safeguarding the elections the first time around to a typical uh, war fighting uh, support scenario. Uh, on my second deployment, you, you, you now get into that transition phase where you're able to sit down with your counterparts and then really map out where you want to take you know, their organization and help them grow. So that was pretty rewarding. So how important was the staff to the work that you were doing, the Afghan staff you were hiring? You can't really operate in Afghanistan without the help and assistance of uh, the Afghan people that uh, you're there working with directly. I mean, if they're not willing partners uh, in, in what you're trying to achieve, you're not going to achieve anything. So um, they were absolutely indispensable to the project idea that I, uh, I, I arrived at, pardon me, I arrived at, and uh, they were 100% supportive in helping me see it through to reality. When Kabul fell, when the Taliban returned, I would imagine because of the kind of work they were doing, which would have involved, I imagine, even uh, you know, targeting or prosecuting uh, suspected Taliban infiltrators in the Afghan National Army, the ANA, that they would have been in a very dangerous position if, if there was a regime change, if there was the return of the Taliban. Well, Ben, that's exactly right. And, and so when you take a step back and you, and you look at the people that are in the group of uh, applicants that I'm trying to help, they were predominantly criminal prosecutors within the Afghan National Army. These were young men at the time uh, at the rank of captain, um, you know, in their mid-20s. Mostly all of them were unmarried, but they all believed in the project and they all wanted to uh, uh, support it. When you consider not only the, the provocative nature of this of this recruitment project at the time, but then you compound on top of it the actual role that they played within Afghanistan society, it's like a compounding effect on 
the danger that is uh, there upon them. Like there's no question that uh, those prosecutors that had previously secured convictions and were able to incarcerate members of the Taliban over the past 10 years, uh, they're especially hated, they're especially targeted, and the Taliban are actively looking for prosecutors that put them previously in jail while under the, the NATO regime uh, and the Karzai government uh, uh, tenure in Afghanistan. So tomorrow, let me bring you in here. These would sound like exactly the kind of people that Canada would want to bring over, exactly the kind of people who were in, who did very complex and uh, meaningful work, but also who are in grave danger now that there's been a regime change. Uh, how successful have you been in trying to get them here? And what have you been trying to do? How difficult is the system to navigate? Uh, the system in itself is not difficult to navigate. The process in itself is the question mark. Um, applying is very straightforward. There is a specific portal for this Afghan special program. And um, the eligibility requirements are very vague, meaning that you, as long as you can demonstrate that you have helped the Canadian military, um, you are eligible and worked with the Canadian military, you are eligible for this program. So um, these individuals, um, Mr. Moore named a few, some of them, but there are 12 applicants that he's actually trying to bring. So as he stated, military prosecutors um, who are also male and female, um, criminal investigators, security personnel who actually protected Mr. Moore during his um, deployment in Afghanistan, the video participants in his recruitment video, and then a medical doctor with the military, as well as a journalist. Have you heard any updates at all? I mean, we know that the program officially closed, uh, that they're not taking new applicants. Do you have any idea of where the those 12 cases are or what chances they have of coming to this country? We do not have any idea uh, where there are. We have refiled and updated each of the 12 applications uh, last week. We received a generic email response. Um, now that this story has gone out to the public, um, Mr. Moore has been reached out to by um, different members of parliament and members of the public wanting to help. Yeah, that's right. Um, I've been contacted by other veterans uh, first and foremost, but have shared with me their stories. Uh, they themselves have been having uh, in respect of uh, uh, interpreters or other uh, Afghans that they had worked with personally during their own deployments. Um, and just to, in terms of expressing their similar frustrations with me as to how the IRCC is, is also processing um, those applications from other veterans. Similarly, like in, in our case, there's been no comment back or word back from the IRCC to give any indication as to whether or not they have been considered, they're being considered at the moment, um, are they in a queue? They haven't been told that they've been uh, successful at the screening stage. Uh, unfortunately, the way that the uh, the IRCC operates is uh, you really are left hanging. And until and if ever you receive an, uh, an, an email that invites you to make formal application and pay the applicable fees, you will never know whether or not you know, you've been screened out or if you're still somehow being contemplated somewhere within the system. I'm speaking with Major Corey Moore. He's a former Canadian Forces legal officer and Tamar Bogassian, an immigration lawyer in Ottawa. We're talking about uh, Major Moore's attempts to try and bring a team of a legal team that he had built in Afghanistan that was responsible, that worked within the Afghan National Army, uh, but was mainly responsible for prosecutions of, of Taliban infiltrators, amongst other things, and just how dangerous it is for them in that country one year after the fall of Kabul and the return of the Taliban. Uh, when we come back, we'll talk a bit more just about timing here, because because it feels like as each month goes by, uh, those still stuck in Afghanistan uh, continue to face danger. Uh, and at some point, uh, Canada will have to try to find a way to help. We'll be back with that. I'm speaking with Major Corey Moore. He's a former Canadian Forces legal officer and Tamar Bogassian, who is an immigration lawyer in Ottawa. We're talking about their attempts, uh, their efforts to bring uh, 12 people from Afghanistan, 12 families rather, from Afghanistan to this country. These are all people who worked with Major Corey Moore when he 
headed up an initiative, uh, uh, legal initiative within the Afghan National Army. These are all people who had uh, a lot of legal uh, lawyers in that group as well, people who did work that is considered to be controversial, certainly people who are not liked by the Taliban for the work they were doing within the Afghan National Army and the Karzai government under NATO uh, command, of course. Um, Major Moore, you must be hearing from them. I mean, what sense do you get from those who are still there about the situation? Well, they're they're desperately worried. Um, They're scared. Um, You know, I'm in contact on a daily basis with members of um, the group that I'm trying to assist, and they've had to resort over the entire course of the past, you know, 11 months while this has been going on, they've had to resort to moving from apartment to apartment. Um, They've been um, calling in favors from friends that uh, they believe uh, perhaps don't warrant the attention of the Taliban and they've uh, sheltered at their place uh, for, you know, four to six weeks. And then they've been on the move again. Their children haven't been in school uh, over this time. And I, I just think Canadians need to realize that when a news article like this comes out, there's a real human element to it. I mean, these children that uh, are, essentially sequestered in apartments um, inside uh, with no opportunity to go to school because they're afraid uh, of enrollment for obvious reasons. It's, it's a terrible, terrible thing. And uh, you know, in terms of timelines, all I can say is when I was presenting the idea to produce a professionally uh, made recruitment film to my superiors in Kabul, I was told flat out, there's no way that you're going to be able to achieve this in the time that you've got uh, here in Kabul. Um, you know, you're talking about Mission Impossible. I was able to to accomplish what they didn't think was possible in three and a half months. And what that really speaks to is, well, why is it that, you know, after 10 and a half or 11 and a half months or however long it's been, almost a year, why can't these 12 files be looked at carefully, considered for the factual uh, veracity of, of, of their stories for what they are, and a decision made where they're exercising their discretion properly? It shouldn't take, it shouldn't take three and a half months. It should really only take maybe three and a half weeks. With every day that goes by, you know, the people in my group, and the people that the other veterans across this country are trying to help, they're at risk of being discovered, captured, and then executed every single day that we're wasting here in Canada debating this. Tomorrow, what would you like to see done from, from, a, from a legal, I know you're both lawyers, but from, a, from an immigration standpoint, what needs to be done here? What needs to be done is that the IRCC needs to have clear guidelines in place for the officers to assess these applications. There needs to be also transparency. So we need to know how these applications are being assessed, how each applicant is meeting or not meeting the eligibility requirements. There needs to be transparency also in the processing when it comes to corresponding with the client, with the applicant, so that the applicant can know if they are in fact accepted or eligible for the program, or if they're not. Uh, At this point in time, there's no communication with the applicants and everyone is basically left in limbo to wonder whether or not they actually meet the requirements of the program and if they are eligible or not. I imagine you'd like to see them open the program up again too. Yes, it'd be great if they opened up the program again, just because um, Canada was in Afghanistan for almost 15 years and they've only accepted half of the applicants um, that they said they were going to accept. Um, so they should reopen the program because there's still a lot of people that want to apply and want to come to Canada. A last question to you, uh, Major Moore. Just the, the sense, the weight of responsibility you must feel. I know how much we all felt responsible when we were in Afghanistan as journalists, too, just for the people who worked with us, because we knew how much danger they were in uh, doing the work they were doing. And of course, we would leave and they stayed. And this is the ultimate example of leaving and someone being left behind. Um, you know, does this taint our legacy there at all? If we don't manage to get these people who helped our country so much or helped our mission so much out of there and safe? 
It does. Uh, Canada's Canada's reputation internationally um, is at stake over the manner in which this government is going to choose to respond to this kind of crisis that's developed uh, through the the mismanagement of these applications. Um, when we went into theater and we solicited the assistance of Afghanistan citizens to a man, we were all uh, reassuring each and every one of them that if they helped us, we would help them too. And we wouldn't abandon them. And it was very much a live issue uh, on the ground. And you being in theater as an embedded journalist, Ben, you'd know this. Uh, you heard countless stories of how the Americans had been there, had promised to stay. The Americans left. And they initially viewed our presence there with the same degree of skepticism. Now, for my project, I did a needs assessment. I saw that military nurses were being sexually assaulted by injured a and &E soldiers in their hospital rooms and that something needed to be done about it. So, you know, I do a needs assessment and I go about the business of trying to make recruitment video to bring in female lawyers so that they can actually investigate and then prosecute and convict these sexual offenders. And I can't do anything um, without their help. Um, and when we go into theater the next time, um, what's our credibility going to be like? Our credibility will be shot. Um, 40,000 people, like Tamara says, <clears throat> Is, is not enough a year to have the program open um, on an online format where it's only in English um, is exceptionally unhelpful. It doesn't send the message at all internationally that Canada even cares enough to, to, to support the web-based portal by making it bilingual in Dari that, that would facilitate an easier application process. Major Corey Moore and Tamar Bogassian, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you so much, Ben. You're very welcome. Thank you, Ben. I was scrolling through Twitter the other day, as I want to do, when I came across the Prime Minister's latest posts. I do stop to look to see what he's having to say these days. In it, and it seemed a bit out of context, he sings the praises of his government's so-called 2BT initiative. That is, to plant 2 billion trees in Canada by the end of 2030. It is a $3 billion plan to encourage a large group of parties from provinces to indigenous, indigenous groups to nonprofits and private landowners to plant trees, 1.1 million hectares worth. The aim, of course, is to have those trees help lower Canada's greenhouse gas emissions. Here's the Prime Minister enthusiastically describing the plan and its progress on social media this week. Two billion trees. You've probably heard us share that number before. It's part of our plan for a clean, green future. That's because trees capture carbon pollution. But in order for trees to contribute to our fight against climate change, we need a lot of them, a lot more of them. So here's how we're doing it. First, we're collecting and planting seeds in nurseries across the country. There, they grow for anywhere from one to 10 years before they're mature enough to be planted. And when they're ready to go into the ground, we plant them. The Prime Minister there explaining the 2BT program. The problem, of course, is that just 29 million trees were planted in the first year. And this all demands a wide variety of trees and very careful planning and execution to make sure the new forests are resilient. So sunny ways aside, how is the 2BT plan working out so far? Joining me now is Damon, um, Damon Hardy, who is the Executive Director of Community Forests International in New Brunswick. Thanks for your time. Hi, Ben. I'm really happy to be on with you. So just just to talk a bit about the work that you do, uh, your organization, which uh, works both overseas in Zanzibar and here at home, uh, you did have one project, the Acadian Forest Carbon Offset Project, that seems to really be kind of the path we're trying to follow here. Tell me a bit about that. Sure. So Community Forest International is a nonprofit, and we are very climate focused. So we're a forest organization, but we're also a climate action organization. And we just care a lot about people and forests and we understand that a lot of the change that needs to happen to slow down is, is actually people-based. So we, the project that you referenced, our forest carbon project, 
originally that was a way for us to save a really special forest here on the East Coast in the Wabanagi Acadian Forest region that was in danger of being clear cut. And it belongs to a couple of our mentors, actually, who had practiced this very restorative approach to forestry their whole life. And they had made a living working in the forest, but they'd done it in a very careful way. It came time for them to retire. All their equity was in the forest. And we wanted to continue their legacy of good, you know, careful forest stewardship. But we needed to figure out how to pay for that forest. And it just so happened that we were able to create a forest carbon project. So to value the carbon that was stored in that forest and to prevent that forest from being cut down and to demonstrate the value for the climate that that would, that that would accomplish. And so that was our first foray into forest carbon offsets. It was really just how we were going to save this one special forest that belonged to a couple of our mentors and teachers. And that was about 10 years ago. And ever since that, we realized, you know, there are 80,000 family forest owners here on the East Coast. A lot of them are facing the same challenges around succession or trying to align their, you know, their values for conservation with making some money from their forest. So ever since that time, we've been trying to figure out how can more people benefit from these growing demands for carbon storage in forests. So that's what our, our carbon pro- project is all about, is helping to reward particularly small family forest owners to grow bigger trees, to keep their forests healthy to store more carbon, to provide more climate security for everyone, um, and to also generate some income in the process. And that segues nicely into this whole two billion trees idea, because really, in a much grander scale, that's sort of what the plan is here. How ambitious? I mean, two billion sounds like a lot. I think there are 318 billion trees in Canada already, so it isn't actually that big. Uh, But it's an ambitious project nonetheless. It is, yeah. A billion is a big number. Uh, I mean, to put it in perspective, the commercial forest industry across Canada plants between 500 and 600 million trees a year, business as usual. So this program is really just adding a couple hundred million on top of that. But of course, with a very different mandate, which is to ultimately store more carbon in these trees to slow down the climate crisis and to help Canada meet its national and international climate targets. So in terms of the order of of magnitude or the scale, it's quite proportionate to what the Canadian forestry industry already does, but it does have a particular climate focus, which introduces additional challenges, additional requirements. Um, and so it's not a small feat by any means. Yeah, tell me about that, because I know that in the first year, there were about 29 million trees planted, and that was some cause for concern. And then it increases exponentially up to 60 million over this year and next, 100 million in 2024, 200 million in 2025, then 300 million a year from 26 to 30. Uh, Is that realistic as far as, I mean, so far, does that appear to be realistic given the way the program has been operating up to now? I feel it's possible. I mean, I'm an optimist, especially working in the climate sector. You know, you kind of have to be. And certainly when you try to build something big, you do have to start one step at a time. So I'm actually hopeful and optimistic that that number can be achieved. The things that actually concern me more are about the long-term durability of the results because planting the trees is really just the first step. You know, you get the trees in the ground, that's the first step, but it takes decades to grow trees into a healthy forest again and to get those significant climate benefits that are promised. And so it's more about setting up the program to actually have those long-term durable outcomes for the climate. That's what concerns me. Yeah, because there is always a quality versus quantity argument when you roll out something like we're going to plant this many trees, and then it becomes about the number, not about the quality. Exactly, exactly. And just because of the constraints of the program, you know, there are not, there's not funds available for aftercare. Um, There's not funds available to protect the lands that the trees are planted on. So, I mean, I know we have to move quickly. This is a, a very time bound crisis that we're facing the climate crisis. So we need to remove any constraints for moving quickly. But I think currently that long-term result is based largely on the honor system, you know, and I'm all for the honor system, but I think some further investment in like the long-term care of these trees and the long-term monitoring to make sure that they're actually growing into forest and sequestering that future carbon that they're supposed to um, is really important. And I hope that that gets introduced into the program in the coming years as they get it up to scale. 
looking at uh, NRK, Natural Resources, Natural Resources Canada's uh, responses to some of these queries, they seem to be pretty confident this this will all work out and that there is, in fact, uh, funding in place or monitoring in place. But it feels like it hasn't quite been baked into the plan. And as you mentioned, that is a concern because once you plant the trees, and we know this from, I don't know if you, I grew up in a big city, you know, you, there are always trees being planted that didn't make it, right? You always got the sense that maybe they weren't being, you know, that it wasn't being that well monitored. It was certainly well planned at the beginning, but the afterwork wasn't so great. What could the impact of that be here? Yeah, certainly all the staff and, and experts at Natural Resources Canada have been given quite a, a large task here. And so I think they've probably got a long-term strategy for some of these things, but are also just trying to get things ramped up to that scale that they need to. And so I know there are certain constraints that are in like the terms and conditions of this $3 billion investment that they have to adhere to. And those aren't easy to change. So they're also trying to innovate within the constraints that have been presented. Um, but yeah, it really does seem like the impetus is on the actual implementers. So the different groups across Canada that are doing the tree planting to take it upon themselves to make sure that those trees actually grow and thrive. And that's going to require more cost. And so it's really up to these practitioners that are implementing the program to figure that out. And again, I would just really like to see maybe more accommodation or more investment for that aftercare and for those long-term follow-ups. Because like you said, um, it's one thing to put a tree in the ground. It's another thing to grow that for decades so that it actually flourishes and actually gets those climate benefits that it, it promises. My guest is David Hardy. He's executive director of Community Forests International based in New Brunswick. We're talking uh, tonight about uh, the 2 Billion Trees initiative, the government's initiative announced back in 2019. It's off to a bit of a slow start, just 29 million planted in its first year. It's supposed to ramp up significantly uh, this year next and specifically from 2026 to 2030 with 300 million trees planted a year. We're talking just a bit about the idea between quality and quantity. Uh, When we come back, a bit more about the funding too, because stable funding seems to have been a bit of a problem so far. And obviously, uh, Damon's group knows all about uh, trying to access at least the financial side of all this uh, when it comes to carbon offsets. And we'll get to that after this. Our guest is Damon Hardy. He's executive director of Community Force International. We're talking about the federal government's uh, ambitious $2 billion tree plan announced back in 2019. Again, off to a bit of a slow start, just 29 trees, 29 million trees planted in its first year. As Damon pointed out, it's not a particularly ambitious plan. Uh, you know, the forestry industry plants uh, something like 600 million trees a year. So 300 million at the max by 2026 to 2030 is not uh out of the realm of possibility. Uh, but so far, in terms of just some growing pains, uh, what have you been seeing? I hear that the funding issues, you know, people are looking for stable funding so they can set off on these projects. And that seems to have been a bit of a problem so far. Yeah, it has been. You know, one important um, distinguishing factor here, so the forest industry currently plants a high number of trees. This is certainly within the realm of possibility. But they are optimized for different things, not necessarily for climate outcomes, but more for timber outcomes. So, for example, all these huge nurseries that are growing hundreds of millions of trees every year are growing a relatively low diversity of species that are preferred within commercial forestry. A lot of softwoods, mainly a lot of, you know, coniferous trees. And so with this being a climate and environment focused program, we actually need a much wider diversity of trees grown from these nurseries en masse. And that takes years. You have to collect the seed, then you have to carefully grow it up for a number of years before it's even ready to be planted. So that uh, reorientation around these climate and ecological goals, even though it can plug right into our existing infrastructure, it does take time. That's one of the things that um, I know has been always a challenge for us because we've been tree planting for a lot of years and getting the volume of trees from the varieties that we want, the more diverse varieties that are outside of the commercial varieties is always a challenge. And also, I noticed that uh, for the 2 Billion Trees project, there's also an emphasis on urban uh, and non-urban, which can be a bit of a challenge because if you're trying to plant trees in urban areas, that demands something different, right? Absolutely, yeah. Urban forests are so important, but generally you're planting a larger, more mature tree in an urban environment to give it that head start. You know, you can't plant a a 10-centimeter seedling along a sidewalk and hope that it's going to, you know, not be run over or not be chewed down or something. So generally, they're, they're planting trees that can be upwards of 10 years old already. And so this program is rolling out over 10 years. And if it takes 10 years to grow a tree for that urban environment, then you can see where the problem comes. 
Um, so yeah, that whole side of things is actually not something I have a whole lot of experience with, but I definitely understand the constraints about the time it takes to work with living things and grow them up um, properly, especially for an urban reforestation or urban forest project. So if we look at this project, I mean, this was announced a few years ago now. It's underway. It seems to be, you know, really gearing up now, or it's supposed to be really gearing up now. How would you assess both the the idea behind it in terms of how needed it is um, and, and how successful it seems to have gotten off to, how successful a start it seems to have gotten off to so far? It's absolutely needed. So, you know, all the scientists and climate experts around the world have told us very clearly how urgent the climate crisis is and how there is no scenario where we can keep heating to a, a safe limit without working with trees and without working with forests and other landscapes, natural landscapes, because, you know, the challenge is about two things. It's about reducing our reliance on fossil fuels and curtailing the pollution that we're putting into the atmosphere as quickly as possible. And at the same time, building back the health of ecosystems, which do this really important job of pulling the pollution that's already in the atmosphere back down to earth and putting it in living systems like trees. They have this amazing capacity to capture and store carbon. So we need to be doing those two things at the same time as quickly as possible. And so we absolutely need to make these investments in trees and, and living systems. One thing that I would like to see more attention to is the fact that protecting existing forests and enhancing existing forests actually gets far greater climate benefit than planting new trees. The new trees are great, and it's an investment in the future. It will take decades for those trees to grow up and then be able to sequester a significant amount of carbon. But when you look at the numbers, um, you know, 2 billion trees, that's enough to plant about 0.25% of all the forest land in Canada. So there's this other 99.75% of this vast forest in Canada that actually has a far greater ability to slow the climate crisis and I would like to see actually more investment in forest protection and enhancement, and especially in helping our forest industry adapt to the climate crisis and, and use their great capabilities to store more carbon in working forests. Uh, that would be a, a greater opportunity, proportionately. David Hardy, thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much, Ben. Yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about this important, pro important program because it is so important nationally for our climate targets and we want to get it right. Right.